our God, take the five loaves and the two fish that I have to offer and make it a feast that is more than enough for your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning to you. Uh, it is, of course, the season of Lent, and, uh, and so it will probably not be a surprise that uh, there were uh, a few priests, four priests, in fact, who went away recently on a spiritual retreat, and part of the course of this retreat was uh, that they were to confess to one another their biggest temptation. It seemed sort of a daunting task, but the first went reluctantly, and he said uh, to the others, my biggest temptation is to look at pictures that I shouldn't look at. I even bought a copy of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I'm terribly ashamed. And the other ones patted him on the shoulder, but the second, who was emboldened by the vulnerability of the first, said, you know, I, that is that's bad, but I i got to tell you, I struggle with alcohol, and I've even been known to break into the sacramental wine. The other two kind of had to regain composure a little bit. The third said, brother, that is bad, but I think mine may be worse. It's, it's gambling, and, and last week, in fact, I, I gambled away the loose offering in the collection plate. And the fourth said, well, brothers, mine may be the worst of all. It's It's gossip. No, if you excuse me, I need to go make some phone calls. <laughs> so how are your Lenten disciplines going? It is a tradition of the church that we prepare ourselves for Good Friday and for Easter with a period of fasting during this season of Lent, typically by giving something up that we really enjoy. It might be sweets, it might be alcohol, uh, it might be Facebook or for some, it's time where right? we take on a discipline of uh, reading scripture more or of serving uh, so that we're giving up that time that we might have spent doing something else. And I think there is great value in making those sacrifices, and not just because we'd all do well to cut down on the sweets or the alcohol, but there's great value because in our Lenten disciplines, we actively open ourselves to temptation. I mean, those precious Girl Scouts are always selling their cookies during Lent. And we, or we go out to dinner with friends and it just feels weird not to have that glass of wine. Or we just get busy and we can't bring ourselves to use the time to read the scripture that we told ourselves and we told God that we'd read. Or someone sends us a link to a funny cat video on Facebook, and it just would seem rude not to look at it. If self-denial is part of our Lenten preparation for Good Friday and for Easter, then inevitably, so is temptation. And if temptation is not part of our Lenten preparation, then perhaps we are not denying ourselves in any meaningful way. There's always a tension in temptation in there. Should I or shouldn't I? I said I wasn't going to, but I really want to. And who's going to know? Well, I will, but God will, but can I live with that? In many ways, as a culture, uh, we have lost the moral language of temptation 
we think of temptation at all, we rarely think of sin or of the way God Almighty has called us to live our lives. But we think of temptation, we think of brownies or potato chips when we're on a diet. And so there is real spiritual value in Lent to setting boundaries for ourselves that we are tempted to cross because it reminds us of that moral language of temptation. And so, in that way, Lent confronts us with both the magnitude of Jesus' sacrifice for us and our perpetual need of God's grace. Now, you might think, perhaps, that a sermon on temptation is more appropriate to the gospel account of Jesus in the wilderness, being tempted by Satan. Father George touched on the Gospel of Mark's very brief telling of that event in his sermon last week. But I submit to you that, though it is not mentioned explicitly in today's Gospel passage, the overcoming of spiritual temptation is, in fact, the main thrust of this passage. The overcoming of temptation is the driver behind Jesus' jarring rebuke of Peter. And it is the driver behind Jesus' two calls that we would take up our own cross and that we would follow him. So in this passage we see rebuke, reorientation, and realignment. Rebuke, reorientation, and realignment. First we see rebuke. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me Satan. What in the world is going on here? Well, this episode comes right after Peter has uh, correctly answered Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? And, I mean, everything that Peter has seen or heard over these last many months with Jesus, he makes him sure of the answer. You are the Christ. And he was right. But from his mama's knee, Peter and every other Jewish person for the last 500 years had heard that the coming Christ would come to set the world to rights. That he was going to come and free and vindicate Israel from occupation. That he would call everyone to faithfulness and holiness. And who could do this except a mighty warrior? Who could do this except a victorious king? And so Peter's heart is bursting with anticipation, with excitement, when he says to Jesus, you are the Christ. Which is why when Jesus turns right around after that and says that he, Jesus, is going to suffer and die. In fact, he's going to suffer and die at the hands of the very ones who should be rallying around him, the scribes and the Pharisees. Peter is not having it. Come on, Jesus, cut out that stinking thinking. We're not going to let that happen to you. Now, who ever heard of a victorious king suffering and dying? Who ever heard of a savior whose great success was getting killed by his own team? (laughs) No, sir, not on my watch, Jesus. And Jesus turns his back to Peter as a demonstration of his disdain, and issues the strongest 
stinging rebuke that we could imagine. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now, I think it's easy to think that Jesus just doesn't like what Peter says. That he's belittling Peter for such a preposterous comment. And first, Jesus doesn't belittle people. And second, we've already seen that Peter's comment was entirely in line with what he had been taught all his life. It was not a preposterous comment. So there must be something else going on here. Now the last time we saw Jesus interact directly with Satan, what was Satan doing? He was tempting Jesus. In fact, it's not unusual for the New Testament to refer to Satan simply as the tempter. Do you remember when Jesus was in the desert with Satan, that Satan took him up on a high place, and he showed him in in a moment all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, all these, every kingdom, I will give to you if you will just worship me. But then, after the resurrection, Jesus tells the disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So he got what Satan was offering him. What was Satan then? What was the great temptation at the high place? It was for Jesus to get what he was going to get, but without going through the cross. Without the suffering, the torment, without the humiliation, the beating, and worst of all, without the separation from the Father. So what was Peter doing when he rebukes Jesus? He's doing the same thing. You're the Messiah. We're not going to let you suffer and die. And Jesus says, I am the Messiah. But not like the Messiah that you were expecting. Because I've not come to overthrow your political oppressors. I've come to overthrow for all humanity the oppression of sin and death. And it's going to be awful. Cosmically awful but it will also save the world that I love so much. It's what I came for. So don't tempt me. Get behind me, Satan. We're going to do this the way that the Father and I have worked it out. Jesus is exhibiting, in fact, he's modeling for us sacrificial faithfulness in the face of massive temptation. No shortcuts. No easy way around. He's got to go through the cross. He's got to go through death in order to defeat it. And hence, his rebuke of Peter. And so then, Jesus calls us to a reorientation. It's interesting, isn't it, that Mark uh, says that Jesus called the crowds rather than just the twelve or the other eleven Uh, for us apart from Peter and I think by saying he called to the crowds this is Mark's way of saying that this is not just for the twelve but he reorients all of us when he says whoever would become my followers let them deny themselves and take up their cross now this sounds like really bad marketing doesn't it really bad because we want the same thing that Peter wants right we want the victory without the suffering We want the crown without the battle. 
If Jesus is recruiting followers, wouldn't it be smarter to emphasize the benefits, the good parts? And it's not hard today to find preachers who take that tack, promising health and wealth and a life of blissful blessing. Sounds good. But Jesus doesn't ever shy away from the difficulty of following him. In fact, as the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, meaning a person, anybody, when Christ calls someone, he bids him to come and die. To take up our our cross is to die to ourselves. And I think this cuts a couple of different ways. First, to take up our cross means to trust in Christ alone to win God's favor for us. To put our faith solely in the work of Jesus' cross and not in our own works. It means to lay down the things that we think ought to get us points in heaven. To lay our trophies at His feet, our accomplishments and our accolades, our good looks and our talents. To take up our cross means to turn our back on that most natural temptation to put our hope in anything other than the grace and mercy of God through Christ in order to have a relationship with Him. And second, to take up our cross must mean to trust that He will use any suffering that He allows to come our way for His own purposes. He will use it. I don't mean that we shouldn't Accept it without a fight. I don't mean that we should not treat the terrible disease or distance ourselves from the toxic relationship. We shouldn't pay down the debt or whatever it is. But I do think that to take up our cross is to entrust that the Christ who suffered for us will sanctify us in our suffering. That there will be purpose and meaning in it. And at least for me, that is a major reorientation. Because I am tempted to hate and to despair the seasons of suffering. I'm tempted to show off my brownie points to Jesus. But He calls us to trust in Him alone and to take up our cross and to watch for what He's doing in us during the difficult seasons. So there is rebuke and then there is reorientation. And finally, there is realignment. As Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. And after such a stinging rebuke, could there be any more gracious invitation from Jesus? Because the rebuke is not banishment. But it is the invitation to reorientation and realignment with Jesus. Now, follow me is much more than just believe in me. uh, Which, of course, belief in him is super important. But this, I think, is more like do what I do. Love like I love. Forgive like I forgive. Stay away from the things that I would have you stay away from. Trust me to lead the way for your life. Now call it realignment because 
like Peter, we all want what we want, don't we? We all think we know how it should go. There is a gravitational pull to our own assumptions. It is, uh, there is a cultural dictum declaring that I am my own moral filter. And I can tell you from my own life that when I live like I'm the center of the universe, then I start expecting everyone to orbit around me. And oddly, oddly enough, they don't really want to orbit around me. And there happen to be planetary collisions, and it's not good for anybody. And so Jesus calls us to realign ourselves away from the subtle temptations of that unchecked posture of self-centeredness. And away from the temptation to believe that we know better than Jesus. Or that His way does not have our best interest at heart. Jesus calls us to realign ourselves to Him. To follow Him. To walk in His way. To love what He loves. To let Him, through prayer and and Scripture, challenge our lifestyles. Our wants. Our desires. Our right to ourselves. Temptation is not less than the should I or shouldn't I tension of naughty behavior. But it is more than that. It is the constant tug to our own Peterness, our telling God how it's going to go down. And our Lenten disciplines give us the opportunity for very small stakes practice at overcoming temptation. And when we give in, starting over, reorienting and realigning once again. But our Lenten disciplines are not ends in themselves. But they teach us to check our assumptions. To trust Jesus with the much bigger stuff. Like who's at the center of my universe? And they teach us to answer the call to take up our cross and to follow him. Let's pray.